You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Hello. Oh, wow. Very good. We fixed it. Behold. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, being here. A few prefaces, uh, three before I start. Uh, first of all, welcome. Uh, Welcome to you here. Welcome to you online. Um, Will, are our online people hearing okay? As one who has often this summer been listening online, I always want someone to ask that, and Will gave me the the thumbs up. That's my first preface. Uh, Second preface is it is always intimidating to preach to your home church. It is extra intimidating to preach here in Waco, Texas, home to Baylor University. And what didn't help me today was why we were singing, looking down to Professor Keith Reich's um, iPad that was open to the Greek uh, translation of the passage today. So thanks, uh, Dr. Reich, for that extra added um, anxiety for me, which I never struggle with. Um, Third, a little bit more serious. I always like to say this when I am here. Uh, preaching to UBC, knowing that um, although I'm looking at a lot of familiar faces, it is very likely uh, that there is someone here new. Um, And I say this, uh, many of us come from church traditions where at some point in this service, someone says either uh, while they're standing here preaching or while they're singing something along the lines of, put your heart into it. Um, are sing to the Lord more passionately than what you're doing. Essentially, the message is do better than you're doing right now. Um, And uh, we here at UBC want you to know that you can let those expectations go. Uh, There are many people uh, for whom just the energy it takes to get out of bed, to get your kids ready, to think through the week, to... um, kind of think about all the things you could be doing, Um, and then the journey it takes to get from your place to here, that is all you have to give. And if that's you, if that is all you have to give, please know that you are welcome here. You can check out, you can take a nap, um, and you are as valuable here as those who have a lot to give to this moment, who also uh, are welcome and valued here. So, Those are my prefaces. The first part of my sermon will seem a little bit academic, so I apologize for that. Um, If you, um, unless it's your one for whom don't need an apology for that. Uh, If you are of a certain age and you have been in church for uh, really any amount of time, you've likely heard uh, some version of this word emerging, emergent, emergence. Um, If you have heard some version of those words, you may be saying right now, oh yeah, I remember that, or kind of has a vague recollection of that, or you may be saying, oh no, are we talking about that again? Uh, It's taken uh, two decades of blogs and books being written and conferences being attended to kind of explain all that um, those words mean, emergence, emerging Christianity. Um, So there's no way I can possibly uh, describe all of that in the hour and a half that I've been given to preach to you today. Um, But I think for the purposes, uh, why are y'all laughing? I think for the purposes both of the sermon today And because this church is a church that for 20 years has contended with this conversation, uh, it may be helpful. 
Uh, before she died in 2015, uh, the writer Phyllis Tickle, who was synthesizing the work of other uh, academics and clergy who had come before her, used this term, emergence Christianity, to describe the way some believers were responding to a massive shift in society that was happening uh, that began roughly at the beginning of the century. And her thesis was that every 500 years, Western society, and by Western society we mean um, that culture which kind of began with the Roman Empire and then spread west uh, through Western Europe and then here in North America, that that society uh, goes through a great transformation and that we then, when she was writing in the early 20th century and we are still in the early 20th century, are going through one of those large once in every 500 year transformations. And by this, we're not just talking about changes that happen um, in culture and society all the time, like changes the way, to the way we talk and the way we cook and the way we dress. Um, uh, it, she's not talking about like even the fact that, um, you know, at one point, 30 years ago, if you wanted to get a piece of information to someone you love, um, you may give them a call, and if they weren't there, you had to hope that you were home when they were there, and then it may take hours, sometimes even days, to get a piece of information to someone, and that some of you, while I am speaking over the next hour and a half, will give that little piece of information to someone via your phones um, in just a split second. Not even talking about that sort of change, that sort of drastic change, although that is a part of it. The transformation wasn't just um, all of that. Um, We're talking big transformations. Things that historians look at and call one era before the transformation one thing and one era after the transformation Uh, Another thing, I got ahead of myself. So, uh, Jonah, if you want to put the the slide up, we're going to talk about her. uh, This is Phyllis Tickle, by the way. Uh, Again, she passed away in 2015. And she talked about these transformations. She divided them into into these. Uh, First century, she called the Great Transition. This is, as you might expect, uh, the period of time when we began changing the way we measure time based on the life of a Jewish baby uh, turned carpenter, turned messiah, turned martyr, uh, turned, sorry, I got messiah mixed up, turned martyr, turned messiah. Uh, Sixth century, this is where the 500-year thing kind of falls apart a little bit. Uh, She calls the great decline and fall, and this is where she talks about uh, the the fall of the Roman Empire, which really happened in the 5th century, and and all of this really kind of started with Constantine. Um, But she measures the 6th century by Gregory the Great, who was the first medieval pope, um, who was kind of the first pope that... um, kind of consolidated all secular and religious power into one place. This is when the church began ruling every part of society. The 11th century, the Great Schism, the split between the Eastern and Western church. This is one we don't really understand as well, and I don't understand very much at all. Uh, so we'll, we'll gloss over that one really quick. The 16th century is the one that we're probably most familiar with, even children and kids and teenagers who I'm looking at. Probably at some point in high school, we'll read about the Great Reformation where uh, reformers uh, who had seen abuses in the Catholic Church began, uh, kind of had um, 
given up on their reforms and decided to start a new thing, which started a new, new thing, and then everything split into 37,000 different denominations, um, which is, by the way, true here in America, 37,000 distinct denom denominations. And then the 21st century, which is we, what we are in now, she called uh, the Great Emergence, uh, which we will get into uh, in a second. Uh, so there are obvious limitations to this framework. Uh, it's kind of arbitrary. Uh, like in the case of the great decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it was really kind of a two to 300 year uh, transformation. So it, you couldn't really fit into the 500 year framework. It also uh, focused, for lack of a better term, on white people. Um, on uh, It centered the experience of, of white Christians in Western Europe and then in, in North America. But regardless, uh, it's still helpful. It's a helpful framework. Now, each of these uh, five uh, times have a few things. They have a lot in, different, but they have a few things in common. Uh, I'll talk about those now. In each of these situations, the Christian church took a vastly different path uh, than what they were on before. You know that from the Great Reformation. We have uh, a, just a, a great seismic shift in how we think about church. A couple of things about that. Uh, one, the old institutions didn't die. It's not like after the Reformation, we no longer had a Catholic church, um, or after the fall of the, the Roman Empire, we didn't have kind of vestiges of that, that empire that kind of absorbed into other things. They, they didn't die, but they, they either uh, reformed eventually over time, over a longer period of time than the reformers wanted them to, or like in the Roman Empire, they kind of bled into uh, the greater society. Um, a lot of times... Uh, those, the people for whom went on these vastly different uh, directions in faith um, responded to the vastly different change in faith with embracing uh, another vastly different direction of faith. An example is uh, in the 6th century uh, and then early 7th century when Gregory the Great consolidated all the power into the church uh, and uh, the, the popes then began making all the decisions and having all the power about the greater, uh, for greater society, some believers were a little bit uncomfortable with that and said, I don't, I don't know if this is the way of Jesus. And so uh, what did they do? They, many of them, uh, moved out of the cities and moved to the deserts or to the, to the forests, um, either by themselves or with small groups of people and began what we know, know now as monasticism, where they led... Um, quiet lives of prayer and work, um, and they basically split off from the greater society uh, as a whole. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I, I could list a million of these, and I, by the way, will not be preaching for an hour and a half, um, uh, is this. This is the really important, important piece of all of those uh, transitions. They all centered around one crucial idea, and that is this idea of authority. Who makes the rules? Who's in charge? What or who do I follow? Uh, Tickle, Phyllis Tickle, it's weird referring to her as her last name, um, surmised that each of those 500-year periods were kind of broken down into, into three distinct parts. Um, 
as people kind of reacted to old sources of, of authority, they spent about 100 years uh, trying to figure out, okay, now that we've kind of broken down the old source of authority, um, whether that be in a person or an institution or a message, what now? What is the new source of authority? She surmises that we take about 100 years to figure that out. Then we have about 250 years uh, where we agree on that new source of, source of authority. That doesn't mean we like it. Uh, it just means we kind of say, yes, this is who we follow, who or what we follow. And then uh, the, the last 150 years, I think um, I got my math right. Cordell, did I get my math right? Is he not here? Okay. Our math professor is not here. Uh, but... Uh, the, next, the last 150 years is when we start to chip away at the authority that we had kind of agreed upon uh, for a while. So that's kind of her 500-year thesis. So let's talk about uh, what she calls the Great Emergence, which is this um, period of transition that she says uh, that we are in. And I'm going to read this because it gets a little more... Uh, wordy. So, uh, in the early days, emergence Christianity uh, recognized, so they either recognized, and by they I mean we, either recognized and embraced, or we recognized uh, and to varying degrees rejected, um, this tenet of uh, what's called postmodern philosophy um, that says, we have no sufficient tool at our disposal to come to an agreed-upon understanding of truth. Postmodern philosophy does not, as many people claim, mean that there is no truth, but rather that our minds are conditioned so differently and our language and languages are so fallible that regardless of whether there is an objective truth or not, it doesn't really matter because we can't know it. And then, you know, that philosophy was from, you know, 50, 60 years ago. If you want to know what we'll be talking about in the church 50 years from now, go to the philosophy department in, uh, at Baylor or anywhere today and find out what they're talking about now. So this came to the church in the early 2000s, which sounds weird, weird to say. Um, uh, incidentally, this idea uh, that there's no, like, uh, agreed-upon objective standard by which to... to understand truth has given us some really beautiful things, such as revolutions in art and literature and movies. It's also given us some really ugly and unfortunate things, such as the ability, anytime we're given a piece of information that we don't agree with, to say fake news. So I'm not making a statement one way or the other about postmodern philosophy, just saying that it is here and it's in the room. So that's, that's the first kind of part of emergence Christianity. Second part, some believers recognized that leaders and institutions who led us to believe that we could come to an agreed-upon understanding of truth often did so, whether they knew it or not, that's important, whether they knew what they were doing or not, to exercise power over those under their care. I uh, wrote the word after this, uh, apologetics. Um, there's a million different ways this may flesh itself out, um, but as I was reflecting on this in the past few weeks, I thought about uh, 
this kind of practice of apologetics, which many of you may be uh, very aware of, may, may be experts in. And as, as I thought of it, so apologetics is this kind of field where uh, Christians uh, find ways through logic and history and um, science and all sorts of things to, to prove that Christianity is correct or to prove that Jesus was really resurrected. Anyone here ever been really into apologetics? I'm raising my hand because I have been and continue to be at times because it can be helpful. Um, but when you think of it, as, as people talk about apologetics, it's often kind of sold as uh, we're, we're, we're kind of educating believers in uh, how to defend their faith or how to win over uh, someone else to the faith. Um, but what is it really doing? It's really people standing up here who have access to a microphone um, or a Bible or a lectern or, or a pulpit um, trying to convince the people here that what we do here is correct and the right way of believing. It is a subtle way of exercising power. So in those early days, believers started recognizing, wait a second, I see what you're doing here, not just with apologetics, but ways that we um, coerce belief into people who are in our rooms. Uh, number three, once this recognition occurred among people, many believers began to disconnect from those leaders and institutions who tried to hold them into some sort of kind of uh, orthodoxy. And here's the word of the century. After they disconnected, they then, we then, began to deconstruct the things that we once believed were objective truth. Y'all have never heard the word deconstruction here, correct? Uh, and then fourthly, lastly, this brought us around to the ultimate question that all of these five changes bring us to, which is, where now is the authority? Who tells me what to, uh, who or what do I look to? Who makes the rules? I think anyone trying to navigate a, a life of faith in Jesus, and I am certain that anyone trying to do that within the context of a church community uh, is always contending with whether they know it or not, this idea of authority. That marks the end of my lecture part. Um, if you are a history uh, or a philosophy major or professor and you have some sort of issue with what I've said and want to correct me, um, I welcome that. Uh, my email is tof at ubcwaco.org. That's T-O-P-H at ubcwaco.org. Now I'm pivoting to uh, something I'm slightly more comfortable with, which is the text that was read. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Patrick in his sermon and then Kieran here uh, at our town hall when talking about um, uh, books of the Bible that we kind of uh, don't, you know, have, a, have an issue with, with teaching or, or preaching, uh, mentioned Hebrews. Um, never thought I'd lead a sentence in a, in a sermon like this, but if you've ever seen uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, um, the book of Hebrews is a little like that aquarium full of snakes in the pet store fire that Pee-wee knows he really should save, um, but he goes and saves all the cute puppies and kittens and even the rats before, and then finally at the end, he's like, 
All right, I'll go there. If you haven't seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, get out your phones and clear a spot on your calendar for some time this week uh, to watch that. Um, The reason Hebrews can be so difficult to understand and easy to ignore or to avoid uh, is because it was written to a group of people who were living through one of these big transformations. In fact, people living through the first one of those uh, that was on that list. And we, being on the other side of that transformation and actually being on the other side of several transformations that went back and forth beyond that, uh, are missing a lot of context that would have been evident to them. Uh, so a little, a little about the book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, it was written by an anonymous author, probably not Paul, uh, but by someone who knew Paul well. Uh, and this is an interesting piece, and um, uh, there's really, scholars really have no agreed upon uh, belief on who wrote Hebrews. They have about five or six different people that they kind of give equal possibility to. One of those is Priscilla, one of the female followers of Jesus, and so I, our, our female acquaintances of Paul, and so I will um, just choose to believe that it was Priscilla. Uh, unlike Paul's letters that start with introductions and salutations and like really specific information about the community to which he's writing, um, Hebrews skips all of that. And primarily, except for the text that I've chosen today, uh, reads like a sermon. The audience, uh, the people who uh, Priscilla or someone was writing to were likely Jewish followers of Jesus who were still worshiping in the synagogue alongside Jews who were not followers of Jesus. Uh, This group of people had experienced some some sort of persecution, whether that be specifically to them or to the larger uh, group. Um, The reason these Jewish Christians or Jewish people who followed Jesus were probably staying in the synagogue uh, was because for, if you've, history majors here, um, after Nero, Judaism was legal, but Christianity wasn't. And so the synagogue gave these believers a little bit of safety um, to, to, to continue worshiping in the synagogue. And then a secondary audience would have been to those uh, Jews who were not Christians, uh, who uh, were worshiping, also worshiping alongside the Christian Jews. What is the message of the book of Hebrews? Um, The message, the Jewish faith passed down from Abraham through the years was a necessary precursor to Jesus, the Christ. And Jesus Christ honored and lived and leaned into that faith. And, this is not but, but and, Jesus Christ takes precedence over any tenets of that faith that had come before him. Uh, you may know one of the primary themes of much of the New Testament, including a lot of portions of Acts and Galatians, uh, centered around this dilemma, which is uh, that the first Christian, well, that Jesus and then the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And they didn't cease to become Jewish once they became Christian. They continued to be Jewish. And then as the message and the way of Jesus and the Holy Spirit uh, began to spread, Uh, slowly groups of people uh, who were not Jewish, who were Gentiles, began to embrace uh, the faith. And so this question came, this faith that 
sprung out of Judaism reached people who were not Jews, the question was, do those who are not Jews have to become Jews in order to become Christians? The answer came back uh, from the Spirit through the apostles, no. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish before they can become Christian, which made many Gentile men uh, breathe a massive sigh of relief, adult men. Then, uh, this inevitably led many Jewish Christians whose entire identity for centuries had been wrapped up into being a part of a small group of God's chosen people to start asking questions about how, how to reconcile what they had once believed and their previous identity and what they now believe and their current identity which is that they are now part of a much wider and larger group of God's people. I'm going to borrow a line uh, from Cheryl Luong's TED Talk. Um, And by TED Talk, I mean actual TED Talk, not one of the tweets that we write and then at the end say, um, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, The question for these people became, what do we do with our new selves and our old lives as they seem to be on a collision course with one another. The book of Hebrews is a masterpiece that seeks to answer that question and threads all of these needles and expertly diffuses all of the ticking time bombs. Uh, But because none of us in this room, as far as I know, are first century Jews who have become Christians, um, the the book of Hebrews mostly reads like a, a masterpiece of poetry about a subject that we really don't know about, um, written in a language that a few of us, uh, other than Keith Reich, um, really kind of are proficient in. But the lectionary passage from today that was read earlier, that's at the end of Hebrews, has a different feel. It's a little like an appendix, a little like an addendum. Uh, The previous chapters Uh, The ones that Patrick and Kieran avoided um, and that I lucked out and got the the last chapter of um, read like very cosmic in scope, but these verses feel much more intimate. They feel like, you know, a gentle pilot who, once they have landed the plane, doesn't just read the script about what the weather is and what city you're in, um, but gives you um, kind of an idea of of what's next. They tell you about the airport and which direction you're going to turn in to get to baggage claim and uh, maybe even tell you a restaurant to go uh, visit uh, in the city to which you are in. They seem to be saying, like these verses, uh, okay, now that we have taken this journey, what now? Uh, And the what now part that we get in Hebrews 13 is informed by, but doesn't really look like what we read in Hebrews 1 through 12. It doesn't look like that journey that Hebrews 1 through 12 took us on. In those chapters, we are given what seems like foreign descriptions of faith and how it works and what it consists of and of the ins and outs of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants uh, and where Jesus fits into that ancient way really complicated, heady things. But in Hebrews 13, the author instructs us to love each other, to show hospitality to people we don't know, to think about those who are in prison as if 
we were in prison. To handle our relationships as if they are holy because they are and to find our contentment not in money but in the fact that we are the beloved of God and to honor our leaders and to honor God and to consider the fact that when we share our resources, we honor God. These admonitions were addressed to people reeling from a massive shift in how they understand reality and were at the, at the point in this transition where they were asking the question, where now is the authority? Who do I follow? What are the rules? I'm going to land the plane now. A little bit longer than, than a comfortable landing of a plane. But. So three things. Uh, on a large scope, to those of us in uh, the capital C church at large, those of us uh, who have made some decision to be on a path to follow uh, the way of Jesus. What do these verses and what do these ideas of being in a new time and a new um, era say to us? I think maybe the gift of this new era of humanity as seen through uh, these verses is that we may have broken free from our obsession with authority whether that, by the way, I'm not going to talk about Enneagram stuff here, but I really could here. Um, whether that authority comes in the form of a teacher or teaching, an institution, or a particular interpretation of our holy scriptures. Now, to be sure, the passage does give us instructions about authority, telling us to honor our leaders. And, and there were in-between verses that we didn't read that talked about submitting to authority. But did you notice that those kind of admonitions were kind of buried deep into the list. It's a matter of concern, one of which we are given instructions to follow, but is, it is not the matter of ultimate concern. It's just a part of a larger set of concerns that seem to be more focused on how we love each other and how we treat the stranger and the marginalized and the outcast than it is on who is making the rules and what the rules are and who or what tells us what to do. Uh, secondly, to those of us uh, sitting here uh, in UBC, in this place, in this specific community, what may these verses uh, be telling? Uh, I'm going to go back. I had a thing at the end. I, I, there were so many places I could have put this in. Uh, probably not, not a good preacher to back up for a second. This whole idea that we've uh, kind of redefined or lost our obsession uh, with authority. I had an opportunity to, uh, about two years before she passed away, have, have dinner with Phyllis Tickle. She had come to Baylor to speak, and uh, Ryan Richardson, who was a part of this community for many years, uh, got to invite several people uh, to have dinner. Uh, and it was... Uh, if, when you're my age, you can think back to about five or six really transformative meals that you have with people, and this is, this is one of those. And uh, Phyllis Tickle told this story about her, her visiting with a, uh, a young uh, woman who I think she said a young millennial woman, uh, which, you know, millennials were the people we picked on 10 years ago. Uh, Gen Z, sorry, you've, you've taken up the mantle. Um, but she was talking about this conversation about apologetics, and Tickle was uh, speaking about 
the resurrection of Jesus and, and reasons we can believe in the resurrection and what makes it um, something that we can put our faith in. And this young lady told her, oh, I also believe in the resurrection. Uh, and Tickle asked her why, and she said, because it is too beautiful a story not to be true. So she had taken that obsession with like proving that something is true and she had a different kind of uh, standard by which she was talking about truth and that standard was beauty, uh, not power or control. So back to us at UBC. Um, we have grown up as a congregation, and I think I even had this conversation with someone this morning, some, some version of it, uh, where there is kind of a gentle debate um, both among us and of other people, you know, outside of our church that we have a, a friendly debate, um, which is whether or not we are special. Um, we are, I will mention Enneagram here, we are kind of an Enneagram 4 church, uh, regardless of how many 4s we have in here. We do kind of believe we're we're a little bit special. Others say, no, you're not special. Everything you go through is, you know, what normal churches go through. There are valid uh, things on both sides of those things. Uh, uh, I certainly fall on one, one side of that. Um, uh, but, there, but the argument's there. I think, though, what is almost irrefutable is that you are going to be hard-pressed to find another church that has gone through as many massive often traumatic transitions in such a short amount of time as this one that you're sitting in and among right now. From the way in the early part of this century, still feels weird to say, uh, when we engaged and contended with all the questions surrounding uh, the emerging church conversation to just five years or so after that when we lost our beloved friend and pastor and dad um, here in this room to five or six years after that when the, uh, the, one of the founding pastors uh, for whom our identity in many ways for many people was connected to uh, left uh, to five years, five or so years after that when because of some of the financial fallout we had to eliminate uh, the pastoral position of uh, a halfway decent guy who had a lot more hair seven years ago than he does now. To a few years after that, uh, when we went through this conversation where we, um, following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, came to the conclusion that those in the LGBTQ plus community can be here not just to exist, but to participate and lead um, and to, and, and to uh, enjoy all uh, the, the, the benefits of being a part of the people of God as, as anywhere else. To shortly after that, a pandemic. Uh, to shortly after that, another beloved pastor uh, resigning. Um, uh, all in 27 years. Um, everything I just described is what some churches might go through in a 300-year uh, period. Having been here, more or less, for all of those sudden shifts and circumstances, uh, I've seen a lot of similar things happen in the times where we ask, what now? In the after times. Every time we've gone through one of those changes, we've experienced sadness, we've experienced tension, we've experienced conflict, uh, 
about which direction we'll go in, conflict about all sorts of things. We have lost people. We have wondered both in our silent, anxious thoughts and also out loud to each other, is this it? But we've always used these times as an opportunity to test out bold new expressions of faith and church. I think this time is presenting us such opportunities. Hebrews 13.1, we're told, let mutual love continue. I believe these times, these days, give us an opportunity to be known as people who love each other so deeply that we're willing to be honest with each other and to have family fights and family tension and still sit next to each other at family meals with a deep commitment of loyalty and love and commitment to each other. In verse 3, we are told to remember those who were in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who were being tortured as, those, uh, as though you yourselves were being tortured. I think this moment in history gives us an opportunity to lean and to live into our passion for justice, for things like speaking out against and working for the elimination of the mass incarceration of black, indigenous, and other people of color. And it gives us an opportunity to say full-throated, not just on our social media timelines and to our lawmakers, but, to our, but in our prayers, the name Brittany Griner. When we gain nothing for doing so, not because we are liberal, are potsters, are woke, but because we are the people of God, following the Spirit of God. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do not neglect to do good and share what you, this is a later verse, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In a time and a town when there are now a multitude of good, even great causes to give our time and our money to, I believe these times are giving us an opportunity to honor this church and to honor our leaders and the work they do uh, to minister to us by being radically generous in what we have, both with our time and our finances, not because we will receive something special from God if we do so, but because this place is special and has something to offer the city and the world. Lastly, to those of you sitting here who are going through some sort of personal transition, seismic shift, transformation, um, this, uh, this Sunday and last Sunday are historically uh, Sundays, both at the beginning of when Baylor starts back school and at the, and, and at the end of the first week, uh, when we really put, and not just us, but other churches historically, kind of put on a show kind of put our, put our best foot forward. We kind of acknowledge uh, inside internally what we don't acknowledge outside externally, which is there are church wars going on um, to, to, to fight for people to sit in, sit in these chairs. 
Um, back in the day, we would, we would uh, squeeze as many chairs as possible into this room. Um, we would had swag ready for you, although we will have a meal for you, I think, today. Um, it's always an effort uh, to reach out to those who are going through life changes. And that's not just college freshmen or transfer students, uh, but also in recognition that the beginning of a new academic year is often the time when people kind of find their way into, into churches and kind of a new start. Um, if that is one of you, all I want to say is welcome. If this is just your first or your second or your third job uh, stop on your journey of faith, we want to honor that and speak blessings over your life. So welcome. If you feel that you are on a journey away from faith, away from church and away from Jesus, and you've decided that walking through these doors this morning would be your last go at it, we are glad you're here and we want to honor your journey. Welcome. And if you are someone intrigued by what you have seen and heard here, by the building and the songs and the people uh, and the probably too long ramblings of a middle-aged man, we hope you stay a while. We honor your journey that brought you here. And because the image and the Spirit of God reside within you, we need you. So welcome. Welcome all. Let's pray. God, emerging from so many changes, both personally and institutionally uh, and in our world, um, gives us an opportunity to uh, return to you in ways that maybe we have not been compelled to return to you before. And so, God, we ask you to give us the grace and the knowledge on how best to do that, on how best to love each other, uh, to love our neighbor, to speak for those on the mar margins who uh, cannot speak for themselves and for whom other people are not listening. We pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. We, at the end of this time, always uh, leave a little bit of time of silence uh, for the Spirit to speak, uh, to correct something the preacher may have said, or to speak something new. And so uh, please take that time now. <laughs>